0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX,
2: this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we explore the Paisley Underground, the early 1980s psychedelic scene in Southern California that included bands like the Bangles and counted Prince as a superfan.
1: I can't wait to dive in, Greg. We'll also take a look at the song Leader of the Pack, by the Shangri-Las in honor of its 55th anniversary and we'll review new music from the pop-punk band Taco Cat. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions and later in the show we'll review new music from the Seattle pop-punk band Taco Cat and we'll explore the legacy of the 1964 song Leader of the Pack in honor of its 55th anniversary.
3: That's when I fell for the leader of the pack
1: But first, we're going to do one of our periodic genre dissections on the movement known as the Paisley Underground.
2: In the early 1980s in Southern California, a new interpretation of an old sound was brewing. Uh, It was led by four critical bands, the Bangles, the Dream Syndicate, the Three O'Clock, and Rain Parade. Uh, The Paisley Underground was all about reinterpreting those uh, psychedelic sounds from the 60s, influenced by bands like the Beatles and the Birds, and blending it with a a post-punk vibe. They used droning guitars, driving drums... And uh, psychedelic lyrics, very dark psychedelic lyrics, to make an impact on indie rock forever. Even uh, Prince was uh, totally smitten with this sound, working with the Bengals and uh, naming his own estate and record label, Paisley Park, after that movement. Jim, uh, why don't you set the scene for us? Early 80s in California. Actually,
1: the suburbs of Los Angeles, Davis, California. We have this scene come together of a lot of smart, ambitious, hugely talented musicians around a band we won't really talk much about, uh, a group called Green on Red, which in my opinion had more to do with the uh, roots of alt-country.
3: Sixteen kids, sixteen women.
1: They used to have these big old barbecues okay Mm -hmm. and these kids would come and these kids happen to be members of what would become the dream syndicate and the bangles and the rain parade they all are Young, you know, and they are discovering this moment of psychedelic exploration in rock and roll in the mid 60s, 66, 67, 68, uh, largely in Britain, some American bands, and they love this music. They love this idea and this attitude that I can create this thing in the recording studio that transports you to another world that exists only between. The headphones, the recording studio as an instrument, Mm. psychedelic sounds, more expansive lyrics, the idea of transcending toward the white light.
2: Well, and don't forget punk, too, Jim. I mean, I don't, yes. I think that it has to be said this wasn't just a regurgitation no. of those bands that they loved in the 60s, but this was... The punk thing was happening then, and, you know, bands like X. She and... Uh, The blasters were floating around and influencing the way these bands approach the music as well. So these kids have this moment. And initially, they're
1: all recording really DIY, really indie, underground. So there is this acknowledgement of the past, and there is this element of fashion. Uh, We're dressing like it's 1966 Carnaby Street. Uh, (laughs) The boys and the girls. It was always an equal part, uh, male and female movement. Just as every band from Seattle would come to hate the word grunge, the bands in California in uh, 82, 83 is the heyday of Paisley Underground, would come to hate that tag and also love it. I mean, it did some good things, some bad things. Stephen Roback of The Rain Parade told me, you know, that Paisley Underground tag was simultaneously good and bad. It mm-hmm. was good because it helped a lot of serious musicians get some notoriety and make good music, but it was bad because there were a lot of preconceived notions about what. Psychedelia was. I want to start by talking about one record, and then we're going to look at what we consider are the four most important bands. They get together, and they cover some of their sacred heroes on a record that comes out in 83, the high point of every one of these bands' careers early on, Rainy Day. And so the Rain Parade, the Bangles, the Dream Syndicate, and the Three O'Clock get together, swap members, and cover songs that they consider inspiration for this new wave of psychedelic sound. They cover Bob Dylan.
3: But if I could save you any time, come on, give it to me. I'll keep it with mine.
1: And they cover the Beach Boys, Sloop John B., we Buffalo Springfield, yeah. flying on the ground is wrong. Big Star. They cover the Velvets. They cover Jimi Hendrix. Uh, they're friends having fun. But they're also laying a roadmap for sounds that they thought broke ground
2: in the 60s that no one had followed up. And now we're going to pick up those loose threads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was an innocence there as well. This is a dark time. I mean, we're talking about the onset of the Reagan 80s. The Reagan era. We're talking about the Cold War era. We're talking about the nuclear arms buildup. We're talking about a a ragingly bad economy. Yeah. Uh, There was a lot of uh, dispirited people in the youth culture. And I think this music took the brightness and promise of that uh, psychedelia from the 60s and blended it with the punk ethos and, and created mm-hmm. something that was really unique for its time. Well, let's take these bands
1: one by one. Dream Syndicate is started by uh, a rock critic, like like the French auteur movement <laughs> of Godard and Truffaut, right? These people who love the art and write about the art and think about the art then decide, hey, I can make some art.
2: Yeah, well, these were you know largely educated people. Their parents inevitably had pretty cool records to listen to, and they were already steeped in art and culture when they started to forge their young adult lives Mm -hmm. in in Los Angeles in the early 80s. You know, Steve Wynn is a great example, the driving force in the Dream Syndicate. The band name, of course, comes from? That is Tony Conrad's Dream Syndicate, the Uh, experimental musician from the 60s creating this uh, drone music that John Cale was involved with and other early members of the Velvet Underground. And the Velvet Underground was a, a, a tipping point band for Steve Wynn. At the mm-hmm. age of 19, he heard a Velvet Underground record, the Banana album, the debut record, the Andy Warhol cover of the Banana, and never looked back. He said, this is the stuff, this is what I aspire to. Well, to, to use the phraseology, both
1: of the 60s and the Paisley, Under, they, he saw God.
2: <laughs> Sunday morning
4: brings the dawn in It's just a restless
3: feeling by my side.
2: They put out an EP self-released in 82, got signed to Slash Records, and then released a debut album in 1983 that is considered a real landmark of the genre, The Days of Wine and Roses. Um, What a record. That, to me, is a really important document. They had key tracks on that record, Tell Me When It's Over?, was a single, and to me that was a great little expression of merging those 60s sounds with the punk sensibility, you know, punk rock songs. This is a different sound that really didn't have a a context in that era.
1: have to remember, Greg, that shortly after the psychedelic moment, it gets reduced in rock history, the shorthand, to if you're going to San Francisco, wear a flower in your hair, right? It's all sunny. But there, of course, was dark trip psychedelia from the very
2: beginning. And I think the band took that as far as it could take it. I mean, it imploded. They only really made four albums in their heyday. You know, the last one was Ghost Stories in 1988. And like many of the bands from this era, they had this five- Six-year window where there was an incredible explosion of creativity and then poof, you know, they all kind of disappeared. Let Professor DeRogatis inform the history for the
1: younger listeners. You know, the magic of the indie rock 80s is that there were no stakes Right, you were not going to be more popular than selling five thousand albums, and maybe college radio would play you, and fanzine writers like you in upstate New York or me in Hoboken would write about, it. and that was it. Yeah. that was superstar success. Every one of these groups gets signed to a major label, which promptly proceeds to jump up and down on their heads and stomp <laughs> out all originality. Mm-hmm. Um, as brilliant as "Days of Wine and Roses" by the Dream Syndicate is, I would say the one essential album if you're going to start with. One from the Paisley Underground bands and that moment in Southern California in the uh, early 80s is Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. This is one of those classic bands, the Rain Parade, that uh, had an embarrassment of riches. David Roback is central in the early days, but equally as talented as a songwriter is his brother, Stephen Roback. Ideas are exploding out from these guys in every which way. Like the Dream Syndicate, there's also a Dark element to their take on psychedelia, a sort of more meditative, philosophical. I'll tell you, I think it was Stephen told me the state of mind we were in was all really dark. It's the Reagan mm-hmm. 80s, right? It was like personal therapy. This music for the band, whereas the Dream Syndicate jams tended to be noisy. Rain parades tended to be very much in that psychedelic drone tradition of almost a sitar.
3: Just, 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 Yes. Nice.
1: And then you had a wonderful drummer. Each of these bands had great drummers. See, I think the secret of psychedelic rock, as opposed to, like, psychedelic jam band, Mm -hmm. man, is that it stays rooted in the rock. You know, there's this thing that's keeping our feet on the ground even as our head is in the clouds. You hear that in a song like What's She Done to Your Mind Mm -hmm. or Kaleidoscope.
3: Like a kaleidoscope.
1: Oh my God, or Look at Mary, which is a perfect Brit pop song uh, before Brit pop happens in the 90s, right. or the original Brit pop of Kinks and uh, Beatles bands in the mid 60s. So, you know, David Roback leaves the rain parade early 1984. He goes on to do many other Paisley Underground-related projects, including, most successfully, Mazzy Star, which has this moment of success circa the early alternative era. Mm -hmm. None of the Paisley underground bands we're talking about today actually survive into the alternative era, although they are one of the many groups that help pave the way for it. You know, they all sign to a major label. They all don't sell millions of units and they all break up. But they live on in terms of influence. Certainly, I think that's true. Of the bangles, you know, there's really like two or three bangles you can talk about.
2: <laughs> yeah, that is true, Jim. And we're going to talk in depth about the Bengals and more Paisley Underground when we return on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we're talking about the Paisley Underground, that slice of indie music in the early 1980s that drew inspiration from the psychedelic sounds of the 60s, but was all happening in the Reagan moment. Before the break, we were talking about the Dream Syndicate and Rain Parade. And now, Greg, you're going to talk about inarguably the most famous band hailing from the scene, The Bangles. Also, uh, both of us think it's important to note that the Paisley Underground scene was not a boys-only club. Some of the most
2: talented musicians, songwriters, and performers from that whole period were women. And the Bengals were four very talented women who got together and and wrote their own music and released their own music and became an integral part of the scene. Killer songwriters. Susanna Hoffs, the sisters Vicki and Debbie Peterson, they were the core of the band. They've really kind of been the consistent members through all the decades of this group. The bass players have changed over the years, but also women and also integral parts of the band were integrated into the songwriting, into the harmonies. You know, people say, well, what's the difference between what the Bengals were doing and, say, like the Mamas and Papas, which is a group I've heard them compared to? And I you know well, I, think, could, could, I love the mamas and papas, yeah. but there's so much there's so much here that, that that's different about it. First of all, the songwriting in the band was top notch early on. Those harmony vocals, yes. There is there are some resemblance to some of those sixties vocal the harm, groups. Yeah. The harmonies it's a it's a superficial comparison. But 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 the four singers in this group, and they were four singers in yeah. this group at all times. Often changing lead vocalists on different tracks early on especially. I'm emphasizing the early days because the story of this band is not a pleasant one when it comes to the corporate thumb being put on top of of the Yeah, (laughs) On top of the band. But in those early days, they were writing some terrific songs with those great harmony vocals. I have to... Give a shout out to Vicki Peterson as a guitar player. Oh yeah, uh, she was just a, a genius in those sinewy guitar fills and riffs. It was about you're in and out in a, in a few bars, but man, she said a lot in those few bars in, a, in every song. Their eponymous debut EP soon after they renamed themselves so the, the Bangles. They were originally known as the Bangs. It was released in 1982 and then reissued in 1983 by IRS Records, which mm-hmm. back then was a pretty big deal. Well, Giving us uh, REM. You yes. know, original songwriting on that record, introducing the group. Unfortunately, that record was not available for a really long time. They sort yeah. of put it out, it floated out there, and you couldn't get it for decades. It finally. Was reissued as part of this compilation in 2014 of the the Bangles slash the Bangs' earliest music, which is wonderful to me. If you want to find the roots of this band, go to that EP. That's the music right there.
1: It's such a tragedy, Greg. I mean, everybody, you know, all my students today and and younger people today, the kids today, you know, everything's instantly accessible on Spotify. But one of the tragedies of these Paisley Underground bands is as fantastic as all these records were, there was a 15, 20 year stretch where you couldn't hear them. Right. Unless you were going to pay $50 at at a snooty vintage vinyl store, you were not going to hear these records, including that EP, including the Rainy Day compilation.
2: They had sort of been usurped by their own history. They they got signed to Columbia Records, put out the all over-the-place record in 1984, which is still a good record. That's a good record. produced by one David Kahn, who uh, went on to do many, many things to many different bands over the years in terms of uh, his production decisions. But this is a fairly uh, good overview of what the band could do. There's 11 tracks on the record, nine of them written by the band, which I think is key. When they brought together that sort of British invasion meets West Coast folk rock sound, With their original songwriting and those harmony vocals, they they were a terrific, terrific band. It is
1: ironic, you were saying what great songwriters the Bengals are. Uh, It is ironic that uh, people who know them, who aren't rock critic geeks like you and me, know Walk Like an Egyptian, right? which they didn't write. They cover it. Walk like an
4: Egyptian Walk like an
3: Egyptian
2: But there's also the originals like when Hero Takes the Fall and and things like that. Dover Beach, you know, tell me these are great songs on that uh, on that first full length for Columbia then the different light record that's the one that everybody knows you know yeah, from that year one 1986 sells. 3 million selling record prince gave them manic monday
4: He had originally
2: written that for Apollonia. He gives it to the Bengals. He had a thing for Susanna Hoff. She was enamored yeah. with that singer. And Craig, and Craig, we all did. Back yes. Then. yes. <laughs> Manic Money, Manic Money's a huge hit. You mentioned Walk Like an Egyptian. That was originally penciled in for Tony Basil and ends up being recorded by the Bangles. Again, David Kahn saying, Hey gr- girls, what about this one? You know? Yeah, well they just become widgets in the machine.
1: But but listen. Don't take our word for how influential and how great this movement was. When you say that uh, Prince writes a song for the Bengals, he also signed the next band I'm going to talk about, The Three O'Clock, to his Mm -hmm. record label. And what was the name of Prince's recording studio? Paisley Park. Paisley Park. He names it Paisley Park because he is enamored of the Paisley Underground moment. That is, uh, he's at the height of his psychedelic around the world in a day moment, post Purple Rain, you know, Raspberry Beret and all these songs. Uh, He's listening to what these younger kids are doing in a completely different genre in Los Angeles and loving it and trying to co sign it. So the Three O'Clock formed actually in that Southern California area in the suburbs. Michael Quercio is the leader of the band and he's a really super sharp character very enamored you know of 1966 carnaby street mod you know he's Mm -hmm. he's sort of a mod and i think again those first two records all of these bands are at their best right out of the gate the baroque hoedown ep and then the 16 tambourines album You know, there's a childlike naivete that is not there with the other Paisley Underground bands. It's uh, very much akin to what... Sid Barrett was doing in the early days of the Pink Floyd mm-hmm. where he's taking you know inspiration from Wind in the Willows Mr. Toad and uh, writing a song about his cat Lucifer Sam <laughs> and so there's that kind of childlike wonderful naivete which is part of the psychedelic moment uh, they signed to IRS arrive without traveling is still a pretty good record She's on- By the time they get to Paisley Park, again, Paisley Park is uh, Prince's label, and there's Warner Brothers distribution, and there's money involved, the pressure is on, and suddenly they become sort of a uh, cartoon of themselves. Oh. But there really was a like, youthful enthusiasm to the three o'clock. Maybe just because Quercio always looked like he was 13 years old. <laughs> you know, even today, I'm sure he's my age, but he still always looks like he's 13 years old.
2: And there's life to this scene yet, Jim. I think uh, nostalgia, whatever you want to call it, there's still some vitality there. The Dream Syndicate have been uh, reunited for a number of years and giving live performances, some of which that I have seen Extraordinary. are quite good. But it's interesting that all four of these key bands that we just talked about have reunited. All with at least one original member. Several original members, yeah. And they've done other things interesting in between.
1: You know, Susanna Hoffs has made a couple of records with Matthew Sweet mm-hmm. of, you know, power pop God. You know, they burst out of, as uh, as Vicky Peterson has said, it was like Paisley High, class of 83. Mm-hmm. They burst out with these fantastic records, each of which I will champion to this day. The first couple of albums by all of these bands and the early EPs They get signed to the major label. They get thrown in the meat grinder and ruined to various (laughs) degrees. And then they reemerge starting 2013 – Come back together and reconnect with that joy of making music now that there are no stakes, Mm -hmm. now that there are no major labels, now that there's no fortune to be made if you play by the rules of the machine. They're just making music for the joy of making music, and they still love this psychedelic ideal. I think one of the most inspiring records I've heard in recent years is this new 3 by 4 compilation. What's the idea? The Bangles – the Dream Syndicate, the Rain Parade, and the Three O'Clock all come together to play each of those bands one song by the other bands, Mm -hmm. all right? And what this does to me is underscore that this wasn't a fad. It wasn't about fashion. It wasn't the hot new thing, this Paisley Underground moment. It was about great songwriting because to hear, for example, the Rain Parade play As Real As Real by the Three O'Clock... The world by the bangles or when you smile by the dream syndicate it highlights not only what was great about those songs by their friends and fellow travelers it highlights what the rain parade's core sound was itself mm-hmm. you know and i just i mean i just i love that it's like if you and me have a big fight and and we don't talk for 25 <laughs> more years and then we get together and we fight again Right? Well, no. it's just, i mean because it, it, it's not just nostalgia it's highlighting and aesthetic and the brilliance of these
2: friends well and it's funny you should say that because the Dream Syndicate covering Hero Takes a Fall by the Bangles which was ostensibly written by Susanna Hoffs about Steve Wynn and what a jerk he was back in those days and Steve Wynn is now singing that song back to her
0: wasn't it me who said there'll be a price to pay and I
3: won't feel sad at all when the hero takes a fall when the hero takes
2: Going back and listening to all of that early stuff for this segment, Jim, it, it revived my uh, feelings about the genre as being well beyond its time. It wasn't yes. just a period piece. You know, some of the later records are hard to listen to because they were so overproduced. But that early stuff by all of these bands really holds up. You know, Greg, when we do these genre dissections, we always like to talk about how the influence
1: is still present in music today. And I see the Paisley Underground. A lot of people consider it a retro movement linking back to the psychedelic moment of the 60s. But I think in retrospect, it's a lot like Screeching Weasel, the Chicago (laughs) pop-punk band. You know, the Ramones set the template, screeching weasel keeps it alive, and then Green Day and Blink One Eighty Two and a million other bands do it again a decade later. So you know you have the '60s innovators, and then you have the Paisley Underground revisiting that sound with a modern perspective. At the same time, there's a scene you love, the Dunedin sound.
2: Yeah, right, right. Uh, the whole New Zealand thing was uh, very influenced by Paisley Underground and and vice versa. I think those uh, chiming guitar sounds that the New Zealand bands like the Chills, for example. The Verlaines were were very much uh, in that same mode. I think they were coming from the same place, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, they, there were certain aspects of 60s music uh, that they felt were well worth preserving and amplifying. First of all, just the primacy of the guitar in a rock band. In the 80s, that was under siege in the mainstream. You know, It was all everybody about was, synthesizers. Everybody yeah. was playing with the new toys and the new technology. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, guitars had sort of become passe in the mainstream. And I think these bands were basically saying, hey, wait a minute. Uh, There's still something really cool about these instruments. There is more to be said. And I think the other key, Jim, for me, uh, in what unites the New Zealand scene to the Paisley Underground scene and what makes it so influential today was a renewed emphasis on songwriting. Um, I think, you know, let's take the best of the 60s, which is A, uh, guitars at the center of the rock band, but B, the craftsmanship, the melodies uh, behind behind the songwriting.
1: Yeah, and I think that their love, the Paisley Band's uh, love for those 60s sounds, obviously there are other groups at the same time besides New Zealand. The Teardrop Explodes, Julian Cope is very much in line. So is Echo and the Bunnymen.
3: The dancing horses, headless and all
1: In Seattle, you have the Green Pajamas. People forget about them before right. the grunge moment. Uh, Prince, we've talked about loving that sound. After the moment ends, there are a number of splinter bands, Viva Saturn, uh, the Continental Drifters, Mazzy Star, uh, with members of the Paisley Underground. But then a new generation begins to crop up in the alternative moment, uh, Mercury Rev.
4: want to ask, but I just stared
1: my hands Granddaddy and you and I we did a you know genre dissection mm-hmm. of the shoegaze movement in England uh, in the alternative era uh, bands like my Bloody Valentine and and slow dive There's no shoegazer band I've ever interviewed that didn't mention the Paisley Underground as pointing back to those '60s sounds. So really, any band in the psychedelic pop mode—you know—you hear it in power pop, you hear it in uh, the shoegaze movement. Uh, You know, everybody loved those bands. You know, everybody being
2: relative to people who like trippiness in their rock. That wraps up our discussion on the Paisley Underground, and now we want to hear from you. What's your favorite band or song from that era of music? Where do you hear The Lasting Influence? Call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Coming up, we take a look at Leader of the Pack and its impact on music. We also review the new record by the colorful punk act, Taco Cat. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and this year marks the 55th anniversary of the song Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las. For one week in 1964, the Shangri-Las sat atop the Billboard Hot 100 in front of uh, legendary groups like the Supremes, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Beach Boys. And while it stayed on the Hot 100 for only 12 weeks, the track's impact has extended far beyond 1964. Absolutely, Greg.
1: Written by Jeff Berry, Ellie Greenwich, and Shadow Morton, who produced the song. Leader of the Pack is, is pretty much the perfect blend of teen angst and pop exuberance. It also plays with the shangri las signature uh, melodramatic lyrics, you know, and the tough attitudes that endeared them to music fans and influenced a lot of artists who followed. I mean, Blondie, the New York Dolls, Amy Winehouse, even the Jesus and Mary
2: chain. Author Ada Wolin writes about all of this in her new book called Golden Hits of the Shangri-Las. Our producer, Alex Claiborne, recently spoke with her. They started the conversation by defining who the Shangri-Las were and how they stood out from their girl group contemporaries.
4: So the Shangri-Las actually consisted of two sets of sisters. So it was Mary and Betty Weiss, and Mary is who most people remember as the lead singer, and then two twins, Marge and Marianne Ganser. And they actually came from Queens, and they were just kind of a neighborhood group, and they were actually founded before they hooked up with a producer, which is kind of rare for most girl groups at the time. They started singing on the street corner, started singing in their neighborhood, even before they started singing what we would typically now think of as girl group music.
0: What I love about the Shangri-Las, and I think what you do really well in the book, you sort of crystallize all the articles that were written about them, all the music criticism, and all the books about the girl group era, and basically they were sort of outsiders because they were very working class. They were kind of rough around the edges, and they're speaking at the beginning of the record in their Queens accents. They didn't hide mm-hmm. the fact that they were from Queens, and they were proud to be from Queens.
4: Is she really going out with them? Well, there she is. Let's ask Betty, is that Jimmy's ring you're wearing? Mm-hmm. It must be great riding with him. Is he picking you up after school today? Mm-mm. I think that one of the things that resonated so deeply with punk bands is that they were kind of I don't know, they were a little off. They were they could sing, but they weren't really these kind of virtuosic singers that we think of as being real studio singers. And I think that's what people really liked, is that you had more personality in there. You got the feeling that these girls, even if they hadn't written the songs, they were really embodying these tough personas and that wasn't just an act. My folks always putting him down. down, down. They said he came from the wrong side of town. What do you mean when you say that he came from
2: the wrong
0: side of town? Really, I think the legacy of Leader of the Pack is it's one of the foremost songs about teenage tragedy and I was You know, wondering, at the time, how did people connect with it? I mean, it was very successful for them, obviously.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I think that this was so important for a girl group song in setting the tone of this bad boy archetype and the idea that the bad boy, you know, this was already a construct in film. We had James Dean, we had Marlon Brando. But to have actually, from the perspective of the girls interacting with this and kind of flirting with rebellion. And I think especially for the Shangri-Las, you really got the feeling that this could be a part of their lives, this wasn't just someone wrote a song for them to sing, to cash in on this rebellion kind of leather jacket thing, this was really, you could imagine them hanging out with this type of people and it really sounded like it was embodying what it feels like to be a girl in the early to mid 60s exploring with doing your own thing, rebelling against your parents, all of that.
0: I think sometimes people get hung up on sort of the melodramatic nature of the song because it's very tragic, you know, this young girl is dating this guy and then he, you know, eventually gets in this horrible motorcycle accident and there's a whole arc going on.
4: He's so small, he sort of
0: kiss me goodbye. The tears were beginning to show. As he drove away
4: on that rainy night, I begged him to go slow. I'll never know.
0: Sometimes I think people write that off as sort of young girl teenage drama, but mm-hmm. like you mentioned, there was a real air of authenticity with the song, and I think it gave them a little bit more oomph, as opposed to maybe some of the other girl groups.
4: Absolutely, and I think that, as I say in the book, one of the things that's so interesting about the Shangri-Las is that They were not interested in this typical nuclear family. They were not interested in today I'm going to meet the boy that I'm going to marry. They were living these lives that if it could be brilliant for a moment, that was good enough. And I think that that's something where that totally would be embodied in punk because they really were interested in living fast. And if that meant dying young, that was part of the appeal. And I think that that is something that is so interesting because you really don't see that in other female-fronted music of the era. I felt so helpless, what could I do?
0: And really throughout their remaining lives, the four members, they sort of lived out some of the destinies in their songs. And can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about both the legal trouble the group had over the years, member changes, and also some of the members have since passed?
4: Yes. So... It it is very interesting to think about that so many of their songs were about dying young. Neither of the Ganser twins are living. You know, they lost one of them very early. I believe it was 1970. I think it was Marianne Ganser who died. And I think the, the only person who went on to make music was Mary Weiss. And she came out with an album in 2007. And it is interesting because like many girl groups, they did not own the rights to their name. So in the 80s, another group was performing under their name, and that was something they really had no legal recourse against. And I think that is something that is so common. When you look into girl groups, often these producers own names, and they could do whatever they wanted with it.
0: The song Leader of the Pack was covered by a myriad of artists, and Twisted Sister put out a cover of the (laughs) song. That Midler did her take on the song and huge fans like the New York Dolls, Aerosmith doing some covers of their songs, and also mm-hmm. Jesus and Mary Chain. When you think about it, what contemporary artist who comes to mind that you think is sort of a descendant of the Shangri-Las?
4: That's a really good question. This is something that has come up and I'm I'm so hesitant of making the connection between like all girl music, like all young women make the same kind of music. But I do think that I actually saw a lot of influence in kind of the resurgence of garage, like surf rock about five years ago. And I noticed a lot of like female singers, which is something that had been, I felt, really lacking. You know, someone like Best Coast doing these songs that are kind of jangly in a particular way where I was like, oh, this is exactly that kind of play on rock and roll and pop. And thinking about how can you have something be catchy and fun but also be, you know, kind of driving in the way that rock and roll is
0: Ultimately, it's friends telling stories to each other and I think that's the right. core of why Leader of the Pack and much of the Shangri-La's music connected with people and I think continues to connect with them.
4: Absolutely and and I think it's so interesting that it was so underproduced in a certain sense that you still got the feeling that like oh this is a melodrama, this is teenager stuff on one hand they are written off as melodramatic, and that's a shame. But on the other hand, they also really played with that in a way that I think people are only just really beginning to understand. I think that the fact that they did have this kind of flamboyant persona is really part of the appeal. And it's part of what groups like the New York Dolls loved. It's you could dress up and you could act out this tragedy But at the same time, even though it was a a melodrama or a play, it really, it still hits you. It still tugs at the heartstrings.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ada, for chatting with me on Sound Opinions. Thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks so much, Alex.
1: That was our producer, Alex Claiborne, who should have been a member of the Shangri-Las, speaking with writer Ada Wolin about the band's leader of the pack. That is a little bit of the song Hologram, the opening track on the fourth recording by the Seattle pop-punk band Taco Cat. This mess is a place, Greg. Um, I don't know about you, but I first became aware of Taco Cat... When a listener called into the hotline after our 2016 Best Of show saying, hey, you forgot about Taco Cat, and I immediately regretted it because I fell in love with that recording, this is a band that formed around 2010, put out their first record, three women and a guy from uh, the Seattle area uh, devoted to that pop punk sound. Some darkness in the lyrics in terms of uh, looking at the political situation, but also uh, a lot of just pop culture silliness. I loved the song that they wrote in homage to Tanya Harding. Now, uh, you know, they've recorded uh several times for a subsidiary of Sub Pop. They are now signed to the legendary Seattle label itself, Sub Pop. I think they're poised to reach the biggest audience of their career this fourth time out with this mess is a place. Let's play a song and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is Rose Colored Sky. taco cat you know which is a palindrome same forward and backwards gotta love that on sound opinions
2: That is Rose Colored Sky from the new Taco Cat record, This Mess is a Place. Jim, uh, this is the fourth record for this band. Uh, They've been around for a decade. And, you know, they're, they're smart songwriters. They're smart pop songwriters with this punky veneer. I would almost call them bubblegum punk. Sure. Melodies way up front, but kind of a bite to the guitars and drums that I thought brought a real punch to their previous two records, uh, Lost Time in 2016, and especially N.V.M. in 2014. I'd have to say that's my favorite.
3: Smash the stage, dirty play. Sleep all
0: day so I can stay up late. This is anarchy.
2: There was sort of a garagey vibe about those records. One thing I've noticed about this mess is a place is much of those elements are still in place, but the sound is a lot cleaner this time. The Mm -hmm. vocals are further up front, Uh, the backing harmonies are emphasized as well, a little more muted on the guitars and drums than in the past. I kind of miss that feistiness of those previous two records on this one. Um, But otherwise, really smart lyrics. I mean, deceptively so. You think you're getting sort of a light, poppy record, And there's sort of a jadedness about this. And and in some ways, the jadedness is almost a commentary on people who have become uh, so jaded that they don't care anymore. How did we come to be so jaded? They talk about in the very first song. Uh, And then they they ask, is numb even a feeling? Right.
1: Is numb even a
2: feeling? Uh, So they're kind of talking about, I think, it's almost like a, you know, their generation has sort of grown up, and what kind of a world have we grown up into? Are we just giving up now because we feel like, oh, everything is going to go into the, into the crapper, and you know, nobody cares anymore, and why should we? And I think they're sort of mocking that attitude in a very tongue-in-cheek way, which is very much in keeping with the tone of those previous records. There's a sense of humor that's very dark lurking uh, underneath those lyrics. So, you know, 90% of this record, I still love some of what Taco Cat's doing. I do have to say, though, that I feel it's a little bit too clean and pristine. I would rank the previous two records ahead of it. Man, you were saying the same thing about Lizzo not long ago. Yeah. I don't know what I like a little bit more, you know, less producer more of the personality of these artists, which I think are are larger than life. They should be brought out in front. They're working with the same producer they've always worked with. I think what they were really
1: focusing on here were the backing harmonies. Oh, yeah. And as such, you know, I think there are a few records uh, I can think of. uh, Les Calamities, that wonderful French garage band I've talked about on the show that I love, and uh, the Go Go's. Um, uh, You know, even the Bangles to some extent, or the Shangri La's that Alex just talked about. I can't get enough of those wonderful two, three part harmonies. Um, And I just think this is a brilliant album. Every time you you think they're just talking about the life of a slacker? Going to a Mexican restaurant yeah. and having a margarita the size of your head—they turn it around and they they bring in feminist issues and uh, you know the, this sense of numbness we all have in 2019 after you know one piece of bad news after another. You know, if it's not the death of democracy, it's the world melting down with global warming. You know, it can it can make you exhausted. And 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 they sing in in crystal ball, what a time to barely be alive. Uh, you know, hey man, that's the line of the year as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and delivered with those harmonies and hooks. I love the Taco Cat. So, Taco Cat, fourth album. I love it. Greg only merely likes it. Uh, What do we have on the show next
2: week, Mr. Codd? Next week, Jim, very excited to talk about Della Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, a classic album dissection on uh, the anniversary of that masterpiece.
1: Download the Sound Opinions radio show program via podcast, wherever you get such things. As always, the show was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
3: All alone by the telephone waiting for. A ring.
2: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
3: New messages. My name's Christy Lickness, calling from Canal Fulton, Ohio, and listening to your segment on rock bands not being the same without one of their key members. Um, it, you were making a good point about imagining Fleetwood Mac without Stevie Nicks or... Lindsey Buckingham, which I totally agree with. Well, I was just hoping to hear you mention something about how the Doors simply cannot continue to be the Doors without Jim Morrison.
0: This is the end, beautiful
3: friend. This is the end. My and they tried to go on you know, but they found it impossible to do so. Thank you for listening to my point of view. Catch you later. Goodbye. This is Chris calling from New York City. I really enjoyed this week's episode uh, uh, with Sharon Van Etten. It was great. Uh, But the subject of my call has nothing to do with that. uh, I've been listening a lot to this artist, Madhu Mokhtar. I probably butchered that name. But uh, anyway, he's... Uh, a Tuareg guitarist from Niger in Northern Africa. He's blowing me away. The guy shreds. Uh, The music is really uh, unlike anything I've I've listened to recently, with the exception of maybe Krongbean. They have a little uh, similarity in terms of the, the guitar tones that are used. Yeah, he had uh, two or three sets at Jazz Fest in New Orleans this year. Uh, anyways, give him a, give him a chance. Uh, check him out. He's, a, he's an incredible guitarist, and the band behind him is great. Uh, love the show, guys. Take it easy. Bye-bye. My name is Russell Yale. I'm from Ashboro, North Carolina. The comment on music is therapy, and definitely many, many times there has been songs from you to uh, Bob Dylan, you name it, that has helped me through dark times and uh, encouragement to keep pressing on. And uh, you know, I've often said, if you're feeling down and out, uh, put on something like uh, the Staple Singers. And if that don't make you feel better, you're probably dead. I'll take you there. Oh. It's it's true. It's, it's therapy. Thank you. Come back. Hi, this is Sarah Fenton from St. Louis, Missouri, calling about your recent episode on space songs. I just wanted to give my opinion. I'm sure you're getting a lot of opinions about that episode. Um, My favorite song about space is Gil Scott Heron's um, Whitey on the Moon, because I've been thinking about it a lot.
1: No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's
2: on the Moon. I wonder why he's up in me, because Whitey's on the Moon...
3: Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price uh,
4: with Elon good. Musk and now Amazon looking at going into space, it just seems like there are a lot of problems on Earth that could be solved
3: with all the money that we're putting into private space travel and sort of a different
4: vibe than a lot of the space songs a lot of wonder, obviously, when you look into space, but I think you can also look into space and see problems here on Earth as well. So thanks so much for the show. I really appreciate it. Bye. No
3: more messages.
1: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.